turn with me this morning to Matthew's Gospel. The book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. We come to the Gospel of Matthew. Well, as has already been referenced this morning, this is indeed the day we mark as Reformation Day. For it was on this day, October 31st of 1517, that the German monk Martin Luther could take it no more. He could no longer tolerate the, the teachings, the false teachings of the Roman Catholic churches, the way they were abusing Scripture and elevating the traditions of man and the voice of the Pope to be above that of Scripture. It was the, the blatant disregard of Scripture and the selling of indulgences that pushed him over the edge so that Luther goes to the church in Wittenberg and nails 95 theses or 95 arguments or points of discussion to the door, to the door in hopes of a debate. He actually writes and, and says, invites them to a debate. And if anyone is unable to attend the debate, Luther invites them to send letters. That would never happen because those 95 theses became circulated around Germany and throughout Europe, and it lit the fire of the Protestant Reformation. Luther nails that to the church. His first statement, the first line of his 95 Theses says, out of love for the truth and the desire to bring it to light. That, that was Luther's heart cry. That was his longing. That was his hope, was a love for the truth and to bring the truth to light. Uh, several of the Theses, you may not have ever read these. I was going to read a few of them to you just so you'd have a, a feel for what Luther was doing. He, his sixth Theses says, the Pope cannot remit any guilt except by declaring that it has been remitted by God and by assenting to God's work of remission. Number 27, he said, they preach man-made doctrines who say that so soon as the coin jingles into the money box, the soul flies out of purgatory. That was in direct response to uh, Johann Tetzel who had, had coined an infamous jingle that every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. They were using that. That's not something that, I mean, you could put that on a t-shirt these days, right? He was perhaps your first marketeer of church, uh, I was going to say theology. That's not church theology. That would be church heresy, right? Number 62, he said, the true treasure, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. The, the true treasure of the church is not money. The true treasure of the church, Luther was declaring, is that, that of the gospel, the message of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, that Christ alone brings salvation by faith alone, through grace alone. And so we gather today, 504 years later, as an evangelical church that finds its roots in the Protestant Reformation that Luther began on that day. And we ask a question. I want us to ask a question today. Why does the Reformation still matter? Why does it matter to us? Why does it matter to any church who is gathering today for the Lord's Day to celebrate and to proclaim the gospel? Why does it matter? Let's read our text this morning, Matthew 5, 17 to 20. And I believe will give us four reasons that we'll look at for why the Reformation still matters. Matthew chapter 5, a part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've been with us, we have walked through the first part of the the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 16. We understand that, that Jesus begins, he's speaking to his believers or to his disciples, his followers, and he's describing to them what does the life of a follower look like. And he specifically begins by saying, this is who the follower is. And as a follower of mine, you are blessed. And this is how it is so. And so he walks through and, and he talks about the blessing that it is found in following him. Now, we also... The first sermon we looked at in the the Beatitudes, you may remember, we looked at the idea in the Old Testament that blessing comes from obedience. We we looked at Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 6, but it actually goes on, I think, to verse 14, I think it is, in Deuteronomy 28, where Moses very clearly says that if you obey, and he lists ways to obey, to obey fully, he says, you will be blessed. But we, we look at the Beatitudes, we look at the verse, first 16 verses of, of Matthew 5, and I would ask, where is blessing tied to obedience here? It's not. We don't see that the blessing of God in these verses come from obedience. We, we don't see that. He doesn't list that. He, he lists blessing coming as a result of who we are in Christ. And so a natural question would arise then if you're, if you're sitting there and you're hearing Christ say these things, you're hearing him teach, you're a Jewish audience, the natural question would be, well, what, what does this mean for the law? Is, is, it, is it disregarded? Do, do, do we no longer value it? Are, are you opposed to the law, Jesus? They, they would all be, be sitting there and thinking these questions. And, and Jesus knows this, so he clarifies it in verse 17 to 19. He clarifies it. It's somewhat of an of a, a introductory statement here. When he, when he gets to verse 17, he knows that they, they have these questions. And so he shifts from saying, this is what it means to be blessed. This is who you are in Christ as an influencer in the world, as a follower of mine. Now I want you to know an important truth. Do not think that I've come to overcome the law. And in these verses, 17 to 20, Jesus does two things in relation to the law. He confronts both antinomianism and legalism. He he sets both of them aside and says that we must not follow after either one. If you look at verse 17 to 19, Jesus affirms the the importance of the law contrary to the antinomians. Antinomians would say that we just disregard the law. We don't worry about the law. We don't listen to it. Well, he sets that aside and says, listen, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And then he, he lifts high the law. He talks about the importance of the law, the importance of the word, the endurance of the word. But then in verse 20, not only does he, he set aside antinomianism, but then in verse 20, he calls us to a righteousness 
that is beyond the legalistic keeping of the law, that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. He calls us to something beyond that. So he sets aside legalism and says that you're not made righteous just by obeying the law. We, we value it, but we don't depend upon it, is what he says in these verses. And we too, today, we must guard ourselves from both of these extremes. We, we have to be on guard. We have to guard ourselves from these errors. On the one hand, we must see the value of the law. We must see and we must understand that the law teaches us of the character of God. It teaches us of our need for him. It confronts us. When we look at the law, we see our inability to live righteous lives. And we see that we need God to do something that we cannot do on our own. It shows our sinfulness. It teaches us how we go about living our lives for Christ, to live in a manner worthy of his calling. It's why we, we read passages where, where Paul says in Romans 3, 31, he, he gets to the end of chapter three and he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He's been talking about justification by faith alone. He says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So faith alone does not mean that we just disregard and get rid of the law, that we forget it and leave it behind. He says also in Romans 7, 7 to 12, he talks about this and, and just this is verse seven and verse 12. He says, what then shall we say? that the law is sin by no means. Yet if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. And then in verse 12, he says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul, Paul says, listen, the, the, the law is of great value. It reveals to us our sin. It, it helped me to understand what coveting was. If it hadn't been for the, the law, I wouldn't have understood what coveting was. It teaches. In Romans 7, later in the chapter, Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Paul did not set aside the law. He did not cast it away. And so on one hand, we see the value of the law in scripture. It's called our tutor. It teaches us, instructs us, teaches us about God and our own sinfulness. But on the other hand, we do not seek to justify ourselves by obeying the law. You're not trying to be legalistic and say, well, because of the law and I look and I obey the law and I do this and I do that and I do this and I do that, then I'm okay. We don't walk in legalism. Paul understood that in Galatians 2, 16. He said, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That we're justified by faith alone, the Reformation cry of sola fide. It's by faith alone that man is saved, not by the works of the law. We're saved, we're justified by faith alone. Let's look at these verses one at a time here. Verse 17. Verse 17, Jesus begins by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is, this is somewhat of a section heading. If you just look in your Bible there, the rest of chapter five, he's gonna deal with the law. He's gonna look at anger and lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, all those things. He's gonna just walk through and say, there, there's, a, there's a, a theme, a pattern you're gonna see as we walk through these, these sections of the chapter. You have heard it said, but I say to you, He's clarifying, and, and so verse 17 is somewhat of a, 
of an introductory statement here. It's the theme setting forth what's gonna happen. He says, listen, I did not come to abolish the law. You need to know that. You need to know it. That's why he says, do not think. You might say, don't even consider. Jesus is saying, I don't even want for a moment you to think that by me being here and me teaching what I'm teaching in the sermon, I don't even want you to consider the idea that I would say the law is of no value. He he says, I don't even want you to think that I would be setting myself against the prophets. Jesus wants them to be very clear on his stance with the Old Testament. He is not unhitching from the Old Testament as some have said to do, and neither should we. He didn't come to abolish it. He wasn't speaking against the prophets. Which that that brings a question up for me in thinking through this is if, if Christ did not abolish the law, then why do Christians not obey all of the Old Testament law today? If he says, I didn't come to abolish it, then then why are we not listing out the hundreds of little commands? Why are we not passing out booklets and saying, here, you need to obey all these, and if you don't, you're in trouble. Why are we not doing that? Well, it's because of what he says. He says he did not come to abolish it, but he did what? He came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill it. You see, we understand that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Christ is pointing to Jesus. It prepared us for him. It told us of his coming. It readied us to understand the gospel, our absolute need for him. I wanna encourage you to flip over to Hebrews chapter 10 for a moment. We think about what it means. What does it mean for Jesus to to say that I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law? What does that mean? If it's all pointing to him, he hasn't cast it aside, but he has fulfilled it. He's brought it to fruition Listen to what he says, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, it's about halfway through your New Testament. Halfway through the New Testament, it follows after 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Thessalonians. Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to what he says. I wanna read verses one through 14. I want you to hear what it means when we think about Christ fulfilling the law. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never be by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered For all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The priest, in obedience to the law, came and they sacrificed over and over and over and over again for the payment of sins. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But Christ comes and lays down his life in a single sacrifice. And he no longer steps to that cross. He no longer steps to an altar to lay down his life over and over and over and over again for sin. He did it and it is finished. It's finished. It's complete once and for all. And he ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. Christ was the fulfillment of the law and he was a better sacrifice. We read in Luke 24, 44 to 47, when you talk about Christ fulfilling the law, Jesus speaks to the disciples. He says, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then what does it say? Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written. It is written. He's talking about the Old Testament. It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus says everything that is written, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, the writings, everything, it's about me. It's looking forward to me. And he opens them, their minds to understand. Jesus looking at the Pharisees in John 5, 39 to 40 says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Although, they're missing it. They're missing it. He says, although the law and the prophets bear witness, oh, I'm sorry, uh, it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says, you, you think you, you, just knowing the law and, and knowing the prophets and knowing the Psalms that, that you find life there. And Jesus says, you're, you're missing it. It's all pointing to me. They witness about me. It's the same thing in Romans 3, 21 to 22. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there again, Paul says the law and the prophets all bear witness to the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, the law, the prophets, everything is looking to Christ, projecting him. He came not to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. The promises of the prophets fulfilled in Christ. The righteousness called for by the prophets lived out by Christ. The full meaning of the law was displayed and revealed through Christ. The moral standards of the law was perfectly obeyed by Christ. And the payment for sin that the law demanded was paid in full by Christ. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God for his power, his grace, and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament said. That is in Christ and in Christ alone. In Christ alone. How then does this influence the way we read the Old Testament? I mean, we, we, we preach through Ruth and we preach through Jonah and we, we study Old Testament books and we don't set aside the Old Testament. How does it influence the way we read it? Well, we sit down and we understand that the Old Testament is still the inerrant, authoritative word of God. However, however, there's a difference between us and Jews. We understand that when we read it, the law and the prophet, 
the prophets, all that they pointed to has come. (laughs) Christ has come. The Messiah has come. He's here. He's risen. He lives. He's ascended and he reigns at the right hand of the Father. Is Christ. The law has been fulfilled by Christ. And so we read the Old Testament, we look to the Old Testament, we trust the Old Testament, and we view it in light of Jesus' teaching, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension and his reign. That's how we read and we understand the Old Testament. And so we celebrate what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Talking about Christ. That is why through him we utter our amen for God's glory. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And we worship him and we celebrate that this morning. Verse 18 of chapter 5 in Matthew. So flip back to Matthew. Matthew 5, verse 18. We read, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus starts and he says, for truly, this is the distinctive of his teaching. He uses it to introduce a teaching that is very, very important that he really wants us to to zone in, to lean into, to hear. He he, he uses it to sometimes introduce something that might be shocking or surprising or something different than you're accustomed to hearing to say, hey, listen, I want you to know this. It's kind of the equivalent of perhaps him saying, listen, this may go against what you've, you've heard all these years, but I want you to know that you are not saved by works of the law. You're saved by faith in me. It'd be the same thing, him saying that, and the, the people are going, whoa, what? Whoa, 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 back up, back up. No, that's me. I'm the Messiah. I've come and I'm living. I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again. You need to understand that. Truly, I want you to listen. I want you to hear. So what's so important here? Why does he say, for truly, I say to you? What's so critical that Jesus wants us to pay attention to? Well, here it is. The word of God will endure until all that the Lord has planned for it is accomplished. It's going to endure. It's going to last. It's not going away. Scripture will endure. It does not become irrelevant. It does not get outdated. It does not cease to be true. Why? Because it is the word of God. When the holy, unchanging, ever faithful, true God speaks, his word endures. It doesn't change. It doesn't go away. Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Luke 16, 16 to 17, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier, listen, it is easier, Jesus says, for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Isaiah 55, 11, so shall be my word, or so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish all that I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now listen, as a side note, that's a verse that a lot of people will quote. Please make sure you quote the end of that verse. Oh, God's word will, it'll accomplish everything. It'll do it. It won't return void. That's what you hear. It won't return void. Well, that's true, but it won't return void because it's gonna accomplish what God purposes it to accomplish. It's gonna succeed in the thing for which he sent it. It's his will. We don't just cast God's word out there and go, oh, it's not gonna return void. We can move on to the next place. No, be faithful to scripture. What we see here 
is we see the totality, the totality of what's going to be accomplished. All, all, until all is accomplished, he says in verse 18. And by Isaiah, same thing. It shall accomplish that which I purpose shall succeed and the thing for which I sent it. Exactly what Christ intends it to do, it will do. When God sends forth his word, he has the power to back his word up. He's not leaving, he's not leaving loose ends. He's not leaving task incomplete. He does not fail to keep his promises. He does not fail to keep his word. He is not untrue to what he says he will do. He is faithful. He is true. He is powerful. He is good. He is sovereign. And he sends forth his word that endures and it will accomplish all that it is set forth to accomplish. It will not pass away. Not an iota, not a dot. The smallest stroke of the pen will not be removed from the law until all is accomplished for which he intends. Verse 19. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, this is important. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We are tasked with biblical fidelity here. We are called to faithfully interpret and apply the word of God. It is our responsibility to believe, to know, to study, and to teach the whole counsel of God. We are called to obey his word as we strive to live holy lives. This was the great rub that Luther had with the church is they weren't holding to scripture. They did not hold fast to scripture. They were teaching false teachings based on the tradition of the church and the Pope's words, his agenda. That's why the the heart cry became this firm stance of sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our authority and rule of faith. That's it. We don't look to, it's not like scripture here and tradition here. It's not scripture here and the Pope here. It is scripture here and that's it. That's it. The authority of scripture, sola scriptura. That is what Jesus taught that scripture would not pass away, that God's word is authoritative and that we are to be faithful to interpret, to teach, to proclaim, to believe what it says. We're not called to depend on it for salvation. We're called to depend on Christ for salvation. But we still hold to and believe and study and learn the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. We still seek to obey God but it's not, it is not out of a desire to earn salvation. It's not out of a desire to try to show how great we are. It is out of the overflow of our heart, the gratefulness for what God has done. The law said, obey and you will be blessed. The gospel of Christ says, thinking back to Ephesians 1.3, you have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So obey God for his glory and out of thanksgiving. We're not earning anything by obedience. We're glorifying God through obedience. Finally, in verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How can this be? I mean, our righteousness is going to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? That's all they did was like follow rules. They were professional rule followers. (laughs) How is our righteousness going to exceed theirs? What was their problem? Well, well, their problem was what? Their problem was their heart. 
They, they looked great on the outside, but their heart was sinful. In Matthew 23, 27 to 28, Jesus is going to say, we'll study this down the road. But he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of people's dead bones and all uncleanness. So you are outwardly or so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Lawlessness. Listen, the, the law and the prophets expose our inability to obey. It's not something we go, oh, we can do it. We look at the law and the prophets and we see that we are unable to obey perfectly. The endless sacrifices, the, the examples time in and time out in the Old Testament of God's people falling into sin and rebelling against him remind us that we need Christ. We need Christ. God's word, and particularly this statement of Christ here about the scribes and the Pharisees that our righteousness must exceed theirs reminds us that we need God. We need the gospel. We need Christ. We need his perfect life, his sacrificial death in our place. We need that because we can't earn it. We can't earn it. So what Jesus is getting at here, and he's gonna just flesh this out through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is that your righteousness needs to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, but guess what? You can't do it. You can't. I can't do it. There's no way that my righteousness can exceed that. I can't. And so I am helpless, and I am in a bad spot. It is only a righteousness from God that is going to allow me to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. I need a righteousness from God. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 3, 20 to 23, he says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, listen, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. No one's justified by the law. It's a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All who believe. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we think about how does this righteousness come from God? Well, it says that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The divine transaction that, that Christ imputes his righteousness onto us. What an incredible, incredible thing. I can't become more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. I can't do it. I fell. They did too. They did too. We all stand in need of the righteousness of God. Paul would become the supreme example of this. The supreme example in Philippians 3, 4 to 9. You don't have to turn there. We're going to dig through this. We're not going to have time. But Philippians 3, 4 through 9 um, is Paul's example of what he did. But if you look at just verse 8 and 9, you can write that down and look at it later. He says, this is Paul's testimony. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ to be found in him. Now listen, here's Paul the Pharisee not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Depends on faith. You're not made righteous by obeying, by the law. It's righteousness that comes by faith in Christ alone. In Christ alone. And so listen, you need to hear that. You need to know that our righteousness is not something that we can earn, we can merit, we can generate. It has to be from God. So let me ask you this question. Jeff, I totally lied to you this week and I said I was going to shorten the sermon. Not completely, knowingly, but 
It looks like I have. Why does the Reformation still matter? Why does it matter? Why is it worth us thinking about today that it is Reformation Day? Why does it matter? Here's the first reason it matters. People still try, they still try to set Jesus against the Old Testament. The Reformation still matters because people still try to set Jesus against the Old Testament or against the Scriptures. We hear examples like this. So the red letters are more important than the rest of the Bible. As if the whole Bible is not the Word of God. You understand men choose the red letters and the black? We hear examples like, oh, you should unhitch from the Old Testament several years ago. That we don't need the Old Testament. We just leave it behind. No, we don't. It's the Word of God. We hear things like, well, the, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. No, He's not. There's one God. There's one God. So the Reformation still matters because people still try to divide. They still try to set Jesus against different portions of Scripture. And the Reformation reminded us that man in his sinfulness is prone to wonder from the Lord. He's prone to teach false doctrine. It reminds us that we must be diligent to guard sound doctrine. That's why the Reformation matters. That's why the cry of Semper Reformanda, always reforming, is why it's important because we always must allow God's word to reform us, to change us, to sanctify us. And this includes his word both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have to remember that. Second reason why the Reformation still matters is that God's word still stands true. His word still stands true. It has not changed because it endures. What scripture meant then, it still means today. Truth endures and it transcends cultures and times. The Reformation still matters because God's word is still true. So modern attacks on the veracity of scripture, the truthfulness of scripture, how it's applied, it does not change the truthfulness of Scripture. The technological advances that we have today does not change the fact that we are committed to Scripture and Scripture alone. Scripture still stands. It is still our sole authority and still our rule of faith. So the Reformation still matters because God's Word still stands true. Third, the Reformation still matters because people still try to relax and change God's Word. They still try to relax and change it. Man has historically tried to manipulate the meaning of God's word and to condone their own sins and justify their own agendas by twisting and doing word gymnastics with scripture. It happened in the Reformation. It continues to happen today. Liberal theologians, unbelievers seek to remove parts of God's word to help it or try to make it affirm their lifestyle choices. We see that every day. Well, actually, did you know God's word doesn't really mean that? It means this. Really? So what you're saying is that you have more wisdom and knowledge than thousands of years of theologians and believers because you're just gifted with this incredible knowledge. Wow. (laughs) Really? No. No. People try to relax and change God's word and do these gymnastics with with Greek and forcing it to mean something they want it to mean to condone their lifestyle and it's just not true. The self is not sovereign. Self is not sovereign. I am not sovereign. God is sovereign. That means that I conform self to God's standards. I don't look at his word and go, you know what, it really needs to do this to fit me. Listen, that is the value of being in God's word daily, 
is that God's word sanctifies us and shapes us and reforms us constantly. We need it to do that. Finally, why does the Reformation still matter? Because people still try to earn their own righteousness. The Reformation still matters because people still try to earn their own righteousness. In verse 20, scribes and Pharisees, they sought to earn their own righteousness through the law and tradition. The Roman Catholic Church was teaching a righteousness plus works through, through faith plus works. Today, righteousness is credited to you in our culture by being on the right side of history, by waving your approval to the right cultural flag, by going to church every Sunday in the good old Bible Belt, by showing evidence of a second blessing, by following a popular preacher with a trendy church and cool music. Those are all ways that we say, hey, we're good. We're good. Bank on that. Righteousness that saves is in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. And there are some of you sitting in here today who you're banking on other things for your righteousness. You're banking on growing up in the church. You're banking on being a good person. You're banking on your other people's respect for you, on your ideas, on matching up the things of culture. None of that saves. None of it saves. So if you are depending on anything outside of Jesus Christ, I would call you to repent of your sins and to believe in Christ alone today for salvation. The great promise of Scripture is that Anyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. Confess Christ as Lord today. Believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on the name of the Lord. I would beg of you today. Our deacons are going to come down and as we close our day today, we have the blessing of being able to partake of the Lord's Supper, to think upon the sacrifice of Christ, what he did on the cross on our behalf. We're going to take the Lord's Supper as our deacons prepare, as they get ready to, to serve us here in a moment. I want to invite you, if you're here and you're visiting, to join with us and to partake of the Lord's Supper if you are a follower of Christ. We do not believe this is the table of Grace Baptist. This is the Lord's table. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins and trusted in Him as Lord, you're visiting with us today, we invite you to take part with us. If you're an unbeliever, we invite you to let the elements pass as they go by. Or if you're a parent here and you have a small child who's not a believer, Allow it to pass by and instruct them on the meaning of what we're about to do. The rich meaning, the remembrance of what Christ did on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O oh God, for its truth. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did on the cross in dying for our sins, in our place.
And God, we give you praise because you rose from the grave three days later and you live and you reign today. And so we speak to you before the throne of grace in this moment in thanksgiving of what you've done. Thank you, O God, for your grace. We ask your blessing upon this meal as we partake of it as your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.